0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I'm Roberto Mazza, the host of the Jerusalem and Plot podcast. And today, for the Middle Eastern Studies series, my guest is Matthew Teller. Matthew is a journalist, a writer, and a broadcaster. And he recently published a wonderful and an amazing book. And I just want to start with this introduction. Nine Quarters of Jerusalem. Nine Quarters of Jerusalem is a new biography of the Old City, and and essentially with uh, Matthew, we're going to delve into some of his uh, chapters discussing the history, but more importantly, connecting the history of the Old City with the contemporary, with the contemporary events that are literally unfolding as of now in Jerusalem. Now, before we discuss all about Jerusalem, and this new biography of uh, the old city. Matthew, welcome. Thanks so much, Roberto. It's great to be here. Matthew, the first question I want to ask you, if, if you can tell us a little bit about your background, and also, why did you feel the need to write a new book about Jerusalem? That's
1: interesting. Well, yeah, my background is, as you said in your very generous introduction, I'm a I'm an author and a journalist and a broadcaster. I've, um, I started in travel writing. So, um, back when I was in my 20s, I was traveling around, as you tend to do, um, and using guidebooks, um, of the day. And, uh, one of the guidebooks I was using when I was in Morocco, I remember was The Rough Guide to Morocco. Um, and as I was going around with my girlfriend at the time, we could see that you know some of the information is out of date. The hotel is closed, or a new restaurant is open. So when I got back, um, I wrote a letter in two rough guides. It was this was in this was in letter days. This was pre-email, um, and I said to them, "How does it work? How does somebody write for you? What what does, are they staff? Are they freelance? How does it work?" Um, and the author of that book wrote back to me um, with. Uh, some guidelines, you know, I also supplied some information for the book about different places that had opened or closed since the last edition. Um, And he was very supportive. And he said, write in to the office in London and uh, talk to this guy. And they'll, if they're interested, they'll take you on. Um, So I did. And they asked me to write, I remember, actually, this was in the 90s, they asked me to write uh, a 1000 words about a place that I knew well, Um, And back then I chose Jerusalem as well. So I I wrote them in um, a thousand words about Jerusalem, um, which they liked. uh, And then they commissioned me. So I wrote a couple of uh, of updates for them. uh, And then I was commissioned to write a new book, The Rough Guide to to Jordan. Uh, That was in the late 90s. And I went to Jordan, lived there for a while um, and wrote that book from scratch. And then it kind of snowballed from there. So I was also involved in travel writing for the Uh, UK papers and for and for magazines and different media outlets and since then I've kind of shifted Uh, I still do some travel writing I still have connections with rough guides as well but I've kind of shifted a bit I've done some work for BBC radio producing and presenting documentaries Um, and um, as you said uh, just in the last uh, period of sort of around the pandemic um, I had finished writing this manuscript uh, for this book about Jerusalem so uh, why did I feel the need you said to write a new book um and there were many different answers to that the answer that i'm going to go with first is a, is a personal one i've um been very lucky in my life um to have been travelling and visiting and seeing jerusalem uh for years and years and years the first time that i went uh was in 1980 which is a very long time ago i was 11 years old um on a family holiday um, and i still um even now i have sort of some memories some some um Images and some uh, thoughts that I, the emotions, feelings that I remember from being in Jerusalem at that time when I was a young child. Um, shortly after that, uh, in 1982, when I was 13, my father had the idea to uh, give me my bar mitzvah twice. So the first bar mitzvah that I had was in the synagogue that we used uh, as a family at home in London. Um, and then he gave me a second. Uh, option for Bar Mitzvah as well, which was at the Western Wall in Jerusalem. Um, and I also remember that as well, a very, very hot day. And I remember the, the stress and the tension of being there and trying to perform to recite these these uh, pieces that I had to recite. Um, but since then, I've been very lucky that, to be going back and back and back and back. We had some family friends. Um, there, was, uh, there were other family connections as well. Um, and all through my 20s and 30s and 40s, I've been going back to Jerusalem over and over and over. And I've had the chance to sort of use the city as a, how would you put it, as a benchmark from which to measure my own uh, changes in identity and changes in sense of myself. Um, And there were various different reasons why I wanted to write this book. Part of it um, is that over all that period, I could see a number of discrepancies between how Jerusalem is... Uh, experienced by people like me, by tourists, by pilgrims, by visitors, outsiders. Um, but, uh, discrepancies between how it's experienced and, and the reality of the city, um, uh, how it really is. One of those is to do with the quarters of the city, which we can maybe come to later. These, the idea of four quarters, that, that the old city of Jerusalem within its medieval walls um, is divided on maps and in guidebooks and literature and news items and everything into four quarters. Muslim quarter, Christian quarter, Jewish quarter, Armenian quarter. And those very hard divisions um, didn't match up to reality uh, that I could see. And I'm happy to talk about that later as well. Um, another reason was that I could see that, that people like me, like I said, tourists and pilgrims, would be coming to Jerusalem with, uh, and I don't think this is, this is unique to Jerusalem. I think this is common to, to touristed cities um, all over the place, but they were coming with a tick box. So people were coming with the idea of, I'm here in order to pray at the church. I'm here in order to visit the mosque. I'm here in order to kiss the Western Wall, whatever it may be. And I could see how people were were, were interacting with the communities of Jerusalem that, in a sense, lay between them and their holy place. So, people would arrive, they would e- exert huge amounts of energy and resources and time and effort and money to come to Jerusalem. And they would see their holy place so close. But then the, the, it's not a museum. Jerusalem is not, a, is not an empty place. It's full. It's full of life and it's full of different communities uh, and people who are, who, are, who are making their business, people who are going to school, people who are. Whatever they're 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 praying or they're working or whatever, it's a living city. And visitors like people like me were were seeing the people who live and work inside the walls of the old city as an impediment. They were they were treating them uh, as I could see with either with a, a sort of degree of disrespect or with a degree of impatience. You know, why are you here? Why are you in the way? Why are you trying to sell me something when I'm trying to? fulfill the journey of a lifetime and get to the holy place that I want to get to so none of that seemed right to me um obviously and i wanted to try and think of 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 ways that i could um i could approach that kind of uh mentality or that kind of outlook on jerusalem and to undermine it and to and to restore if you like a sense of balance to restore the idea that the people whose uh, lives and 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 uh, uh pasts and futures are embodied in the in the in the in the holy places of jerusalem um are important and they and they should be celebrated as being important so i wanted to use the platform that i've been able to develop as a writer as a journalist to amplify the voices of the people who live and work inside the walls of the old city that was a strong motivation for me to write this new
0: book we will certainly talk about the question of the quarters, which is a fascinating one. But let me start uh, with the introduction of your book. Now, the introduction is uh, essentially calls the city, a city of iceberg. And I found it a very, very fascinating analogy. And basically, you present how others see the city. And I was wondering about your view, and you already said a few things about it, but uh, what is your general feeling about Jerusalem? That's a tough question, though, Roberta. What's my general feeling? My general
1: feeling is Jerusalem is, uh, and I don't think this is going to be news to anybody, is an extraordinarily tense place to be. Um, all these different communities and all the different um, the, the histories, uh, religious and political um, and social and economic, that clash in this very, very, very small place, this small area, Um, I should say that, you know, inside the walls of the old city, it's only about one square kilometre. It's not a big place at all. Um, All of these histories and all these different streams sort of crash together, if you like. Um, It's a place which is very confusing and very difficult uh, for outsiders to understand. Um, One of the things um, that I found very instructive, actually, when I was... Uh, thinking about the book and researching the book was—I um, was very lucky to do a trip. Um, it was a trip around Jordan, actually, um, with a friend of mine from uh, Canada who is blind, uh, and we travelled together for for uh, a week or so. And it was it was fascinating to, to 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 be with him. I was going to say to see, but it's, yes, I was. I was watching him as he travelled, but to be with him as he travelled and to understand what travel was for him, what new places meant to him, and how he was able to, um, to, to to get under the surface, if you like, of a new place that he would just be visiting fresh. Um, and it made me realize, um, which I also I don't think is going to be news to anybody, but we rely on our eyes too much. Um, and particularly in the context of Jerusalem, one of the things that I that I harp on in the book is the idea that whatever you're seeing in front of you is not the truth of what's actually going on. So I try to um, uh, to evoke Jerusalem with, with our other senses as well, with touch, with smell, with hearing, um, to to try and and also taste as well, to try and and deconstruct a little bit that reliance on sight that that sighted people always do. Um, the way that my blind friend in Jordan. Uh, Would understand places was was fascinating. We went to a um, uh, a particularly beautiful part of northern Jordan. It's a place near uh, it's near a place called Um Omkais up in the up in the northern hills, Um, and it's a historical site. Um, So you know there was a certain degree of explaining the Roman history and the Byzantine history of the place, the ruins you know that we were in. But also it's a very beautiful natural site. So we was you know we took a took a break sitting. uh, We did a walk into the countryside. We took a break sitting on a hillside. Um, um, uh, drinking tea, and I was able to see this extraordinary view of this beautiful uh, landscape of wildflowers and hills uh, going across this incredible valley seen across to the Sea of Galilee um, over the border um, in uh, northern Israel. And we could see Palestine, or we could see Syria, and we could, uh, you know, from some places, you can also see the, the the mountains, the snowy mountains, just on the edge of where Lebanon is as well. Um, but there's no point saying all of that to somebody who can't see it. How do you get across to a person who can't see the beauty of that landscape and the depth and variety of the natural scene of these wildflower meadows and, and the hills in front of you? Um, it's very difficult to do. Well, the people that we, we were with in Jordan, um, one of our guides was a, was a specialist guide who, um, who has worked a lot with, with people who are blind. Um, and he uh, took us to um, a, a beekeeper just around the corner in, in sort of a few minutes away from where we were sitting. Um, and as part of that visit, as well as coming close to the hives and, and putting on the protective gear and actually sort of handling the hives, um, which helped to bring uh, another level of reality through to my friend as well. We also tasted honey, so we were tasting four different kinds of honey from the bees um, in different, you know, that, that, that were visiting different parts of these wildflower meadows. And some of the honey was was very light and floral, and some of it was rich and deep, and some of it was kind of bland and medium, and some of it was thick, and some of it was not thick, and some of it was whatever. There were different varieties of honey. And by tasting, by adding that new depth to his understanding of the place that we had just been in, he was able to, to to gain even more depth of understanding. And by the end, it felt like you know he knew the place at least as well as I did, and in some ways much better than I did. Even though I've been visiting for years with my eyes open and seeing everything. So that's a very long-winded story, but to try and, uh, and, and relate that, uh, that was very instructive for me when I was writing this book about Jerusalem, but to try and relate that to the Jerusalem context, um, the understanding of what you're seeing in front of you when you're in Jerusalem um, doesn't come through your eyes alone. It comes through um, a, a, a deeper sense of humanity, if you like, and part of that is... is is sensuous is through our touch or through a taste or through hearing or smell or whatever. Um, And part of it is through a human understanding is through, um, is through seeing the place as being community. Um, That's one thing that I really wanted to try and get across in the book. And I hope I have Um, that's, that's that's my point about a city of icebergs is that what you're seeing is only ever, you know, the, the small amount, the 10% or whatever it is above the surface. And, even if you can't access the 90% beneath at least be aware of it and at least have an idea that you know something that's happening in front of your eyes is not the whole story
0: i found the story of your friend fascinating perhaps one that should have been in the book but uh it's already a lengthy book and this would have added even more uh so perhaps better just leave it to uh, to a podcast i'm curious about something because you already mentioned a few things here and there uh, certainly, writing a book uh, uh, about Jerusalem is challenging in many ways. And I was wondering, what kind of challenges did you have to overcome? Um, yeah, some of the challenges
1: were um, a sense of where I fit. Um, so I was very aware when I was uh, researching and writing this book of, you know, 150 years, probably more, probably 175, even 200 years of people like me, white, um, English, well-spoken, relatively well-educated, relatively posh uh, men, in particular men, um, writing about Jerusalem or, you know, coming to Jerusalem and claiming it as their own um, for, uh, claiming it for for Britain, claiming it for the empire, claiming it for Christianity, if you like. Um, And then Um, you know, writing in in detail why their opinion about the place matters so very, very much and why everybody should listen to them. Um, There are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of books about Jerusalem by people like me from a nominally perspective like mine. I was very aware um, during the whole process of of conceiving and also researching and writing the book um, that I wanted to try and keep I, I could feel those ghosts behind me I wanted to try and keep them behind me um, and to and to be aware of what's gone before and to try obviously as much as you can to, to try and be different um, so that was one challenge um, that was um, that was significant the other challenge I mean there were there were a number of different challenges in a number of different directions part of it was also political as well that um, in wanting to write about Jerusalem and particularly the people of Jerusalem, um, it's very important to be able, uh, if you like, to be trusted to go and make connections with people. And this is this is common also to to journalists working in different places around the world for different reasons as well. Um, it's almost impossible. Well, no, I was going to say it's almost impossible to rock up somewhere um, expect to get uh, you know the 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 true uh, story of the place in uh, in a, in a week or two. Um, and to go away and write it and that's it. It's not impossible to do that, it is possible. Now, many journalists do do that, unfortunately. Um, but you're not, um, obviously you're not getting anywhere close to what's actually going on and to what people may actually be feeling and thinking. Um, so a challenge was to try and use the, um, the the, if you like, the the depth of my experience, I would hesitate to put it in quite such grandiose terms as that, but to use the depth of my experience Um, to, uh, be able to, um, um, to, to prove myself reliable, if you like, to the people I was talking to, um, and, and for people to be able, um, to, to want to give me their stories, that's a very complicated process. It's a very difficult process. Um, and also there are, there are things tied up in that as well about, um, it's also racialized as well, where white people will come in and take other people's, particularly uh, brown or black people's stories, um, and then use them for their own benefit, use them in their own way. Obviously, I was trying to avoid doing that as much as I could. My purpose was to allow people the space um, to, to use their voices as they wish. You know, it's very, uh, that's another thing that I wanted to make clear in this book is that you know, I'm not giving anybody a voice. People have voices, the people, the Palestinian people in particular in Jerusalem, they have voices and they've been yelling and shouting very, very loud for a very, very long time uh, and they've not been being listened to. Um, so my purpose was to try and amplify their voices, to use my platform to allow them to speak Um that was a that was a significant challenge. I hope I've succeeded. I don't know if I have or not. Um, you're, maybe you're the best judge of that. Um, but there were a number of challenges. Uh, I found it fascinating. The whole process of writing the book was was extraordinarily um, challenging and interesting
0: and and absorbing. The the, the political challenges are obviously some, you know really uh, something that touch. Uh, your work and uh, sometimes they become very personal because, in the end, uh, you know that whatever you're going to write, you may be attacked by one side or another. Mm-hmm. Or at, at some point, uh, the, the, there are choices to be made. And, and I think it's important to, uh, as you said, but uh, and I know it as an author uh, writing about particularly Jerusalem, that sometimes it's better to say upfront, you know, where you stand and then you take it from there, knowing that some readers may be happy and some readers may not be happy about it. Mm-hmm. But let's go back to the book, because you already talked about uh, uh, the question of the quarters. You mentioned that at the very beginning. And really central to the book is the idea of the quarters of a city. Now, today we think about uh, the four quarters of Jerusalem, the Christian, the Jewish, the Armenian, and the Muslim. But uh, the story is a little bit more complicated. And so I was wondering if you can actually complicate the story, telling us uh, what does it mean, a quarter in Jerusalem, and how they developed throughout history. Mm. That's a big question, Roberto. <laughs> That's a huge question.
1: Um, and there are, you know, prof- I'm not a professional historian, but there are professional historians um, that will be able to answer it much better than me, but I will do my best. Um, these quarters, uh, I, I, I'm going to hold back um, the idea of of what quarter may or may not mean um, and and how the, the term stands in this context um, until the end. Maybe we can talk about it or bring it up again. Um, but I'm going to focus on the actual story of the four quarters in Jerusalem to start with. When I was researching um, and looking around, as I said, uh, when I was visiting Jerusalem through my 20s and 30s and 40s, um, I could see that these quarters didn't make sense. There is no line you know, between the Christian quarter and the Muslim quarter. That line is just a street. It's a market street. It's not particularly wide. It's like two or three meters wide. There were shops on both sides. There were people on both sides. There, it's not even both sides because there's just there's there's activity moving to and fro. Um, so the idea of a border between one quarter and another, I could see already was false. But then you know I wanted to try and understand where the idea came from. I think it's it's um, uh, it's very important the way that we that we see Jerusalem, how Jerusalem is perceived outside when it's only ever depicted divided into these four um ethno-religiously defined quarters um i think is very important and i think it affects um all sorts of things uh, leading up to you know a, a political a geopolitical policy on jerusalem um but i was looking into where they where they came from and i would be looking in um scholarly works uh in uh, in academic um uh, um papers um and other places as well. and they um inevitably, and inv- no invariably, they would be showing um, the idea of the four quarters having arisen in the nineteenth century, which we know it's not an ancient thing. it's not a it's not something you know, going back to biblical times or something. It's relatively recent, but they would be defining it as just having sort of arisen spontaneously. At one point in the 19th century, when European um, outsiders were visiting and exploring Jerusalem more for the first time, um, the city—how would they put it? They, you know, some people would put, would put it that it was just the city was divided into four for the first time, or these quarters just arose. And none of that seemed very satisfying to me. You know, I wanted to know where did it come from. You can see why. We can talk about why in a minute, but but I wanted to know who and where. Uh, the 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 idea originated with, um, so I started to look into it, and I started to look at um, to look at how Jerusalem had been depicted um, in cartography over the the centuries before as well, which is another massive topic. Um, the the depiction of Jerusalem, particularly, is this, this idealized um, point of contact between heaven and earth, um, and that. That sort of um, that conception of Jerusalem, that idealized conception of Jerusalem persisted through to give or take Napoleon Napoleon invaded Egypt and then Palestine in seventeen ninety eight and ninety nine and with him as well as military forces, he brought with him um, a contingent of uh, artists and scholars and scientists and explorers um, who spread out and began to to research and they they well, their findings you know, sparked this surge of interest in in Arab and Turkish culture in Europe, which survives to this day. Um, and we can see that very shortly afterwards, the first maps of Jerusalem start to appear that are not idealized, that are taken from measurements drawn in the field. Um, so the first one is in eighteen eighteen, um, and if you have a look at it, this was another bonus of of my work is being able to dig around in old maps, which is just. You know, catnip, marvelous. Um, and you look at this map um, from 1818, and you can see that the only, there's there's loads and loads of interest, and you could write a, a, a thesis about this particular map just by itself. Um, but the only uh, area within the walls, within the city, that's defined in ethno-religious terms is the Jewish quarter, Judenstadt, um, as it's named on this map. Um, and that in itself, says something as we as we as we move through you look from there to the next sort of cartographic advance was 1835 there was a map by an English explorer um, and again the only uh, area that's labelled according to this ethno religious uh, identification is Jewish quarter again um, but also at, by this time we start to see um, Areas uh, are labelled around the Armenian church and around the Latin church and around the Greek church. These are not quarters, but they are at least identified as areas of Christian settlement. So European outsiders were able to see where Jews were living. But then as time went on as, as, and as more people approached and as more people explored, they were able to, to identify areas of Christian settlement. And then you move on. There's one in 1837 where we start to see quarters for the first time. We see a Turkish quarter, and then we see a Greek quarter, an Armenian quarter, and a Latin quarter, and also a Jewish quarter as well. And as far as I can tell, that point, 1837 is the first time that the idea of quarters appears on a map of Jerusalem. But this period um, was also a a time of political upheaval as well, the 1830s in in Jerusalem, but in all of Palestine. There had been a, a a rebellion uh, led from Egypt, which had challenged Ottoman rule. Um, and there was a popular uprising in Palestine as well, which led to a power vacuum. And European powers who were getting engaged with the Ottoman Empire kind of the, for the first time uh, around this period, were well, jockeying for position. They were trying to sort of um, uh, to exploit the instability for their own purposes, but also um, to uh, to advance their own interests. So this is a period where we see European consulates opening in Jerusalem for the first time um and as part of that as well particularly thinking about uh, uh, the british um there was um there was a, 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 an effort by the british to to spark a diplomatic initiative using um um uh, alliances with um, with uh, prussia and and um also with austria hungary i think as well um in 1839 1840 um to try and 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 calm the, the political instability down. Um, that failed and then Britain, as it so often does, went in militarily and it bombed Palestine effectively into submission in 1840, handed Palestine back to the Ottoman Sultan. Um, at this point, the British consulate was open, um, but um, it wasn't, uh, uh, as, 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 well as, as well as the, the, the military intervention, what you had the, the the military um the military remained in place if you like there was a there was a contingent of royal engineers who stayed following that 1840 bombardment um in order to survey terrain so they were surveying the, the terrain of the holy land and at the same time there was a um a religious uh, a missionary initiative as well on behalf of britain so britain um uh, and other European powers had long uh, viewed the people of the Ottoman Empire um, as um, open to evangelizing. Um, and uh, there was a movement uh, in the first half of the 19th century, um, uh, based in London, to um, to evangelize uh, the people of the Holy Land in particular. And so what we had in uh, 1842 was the arrival, I'm sort of compressing this story down a bit as well, um, is the arrival of the first Protestant bishop of Jerusalem um, from London. Um, With him came a chaplain, and the chaplain's name was George Williams. He was a young man. He was 27 when he arrived in Jerusalem. He only stayed in Jerusalem uh, for about a year. Um, But uh, while he was there, he... Was um, uh, he was researching on, uh, with the idea of this, if, with this evangelizing mission behind him. The issue was um, it was impossible for Britain to evangelize Muslims because Ottoman law at that time stipulated death uh, for people who converted away from Islam. It was extremely difficult to evangelize Catholics or Orthodox Christians as well, partly because there was no um, a, a motivation within those communities, but also because uh, France was protecting Catholic rights and Imperial Russia was protecting Orthodox rights. So if you start to mess with the communal balance, then you start to spark another diplomatic row, um, which Britain was keen to avoid at that time. So um, partly for those practical reasons and also partly for, for um, a broader and wider eschatol- eschatological reasons too, Britain was focusing All of its evangelizing efforts on the Jews, um, and particularly on the Jews of Jerusalem. So uh, George Williams was there um, in order to uh, effect to research the city to find out who lived where. This is why this this is this is what the what the British wanted to know was which communities lived in which place in order that they could focus and target their evangelizing efforts. So we see George Williams' book, um, which comes out a few years later in 1849 includes a map, and it includes the map um, uh, which is drawn from the Royal Engineers survey, which had been done a few years previously. And this is the map that, for the first time, we see Jerusalem divided into four, Muslim, Christian, Jewish, and Armenian quarters. As far as I can tell, George Williams is the instigator of the four quarters. Before him, maps didn't show them. After him, pretty much every single map that any outside a European or American cartographer makes of Jerusalem includes these four quarters. So there's a direct line from George Williams to the maps and the guidebooks and the the news stories and and the literature that we all see and use every day today about Jerusalem that shows Jerusalem divided into four. Why have these quarters survived? They've survived. There's a bunch of reasons why we could go into it, but broadly, in a sentence or two, they've survived because they suit the colonial ambitions of successive waves of rulers of Jerusalem over those 150 plus years since George Williams. Effectively, they divide and rule, and that suited the British outlook pre-colonial times. You know, in the, in the in the mid and late 19th century, it suited um, the British mandate. From the from 1917 onwards, and it suits also the Israeli government of today as well. They've persisted, um, um, not because they're right, not because they reflect a reality, which they don't, but they've persisted for um, political and geopolitical reasons, um, which I find to, now to be spurious. Um, that's a very, very, very long-winded answer um, to the idea of quarters. We talked um, a little bit earlier about uh, what quarter means, there's a, there's a section which I go into in the book as well about the use um, and the nuances behind the word quarter, where quarter came from, quarter originated in Latin, um, it came from, a, from a, uh, the division of a Roman military camp into four by the creation of a of north-south road and an east-west road. <clears throat> And the the, the quarters in a Roman camp would be um, given over to different units or different designations, whatever. Um, But there are military, at least in English, there are military nuances that survive behind the word quarter. We think of quartermaster um, is a a military um, uh, um, department that looks after supplies. um, To give no quarter to an enemy. Even just the word headquarters, um, has a has a military origin to it as well there are many other examples too that the word is not a neutral word um and uh it's quite telling that it's used still today it survives most often um in um uh, municipal gentrification schemes if a if a municipality and i think this this would be the same in britain or in america or even um, in other places too that are non-english um when a municipality wants to wants to sort of revivify a, a, a rundown area of their city, um, they'll maybe try and do it up a bit or whatever, and they'll resell it as the garden quarter, the, I don't know, the riverside quarter, the canal quarter, or they'll choose a historical word or something. The idea of quarter is not neutral. And the idea of who lives in a quarter um is very, very complex. I go into it a little bit in the book, but I'm also fascinated by that, and I feel that there may actually be another book just in the word quarter alone, Um, but maybe not straight away. (laughs)
0: Let me say uh, a couple of things here. Uh, One is that your narrative certainly point out to the fact uh, that uh, this division in four quarters is is, uh, artificial, and, you know, the map and the, the, the story of the map that you, you discuss in the book really shows how this came about for all sorts of reasons. And I also want to highlight that for those who are interested, there's a very fascinating article by Michel Campos who mm. looked at, at um, the quarters of Jerusalem rely on GIS technology for the late Ottoman era. And essentially, mm. the findings are suggesting that, uh, uh, yes, there were clusters where people lived uh, uh, Sort of uh, together, uh, you know, in terms of religion or ethnicity. But effectively, the old quarters of the cities were all mixed, and Mm. so we have this kind of like dichotomy where yes, there are certainly areas with a majority of either Christian or Muslim, of Jews or Armenians, but it also shows the fact that there were properties inhabited by uh, individuals belonging to different religious groups, and they all shared the quarter. So. And I think that's that's a key point
1: that that idea of exclusivity that that hangs around in the in the shadows of the word quarter, I think is also very relevant in this context too. I think even very simplistically, when I was uh, you know visiting myself as a tourist, when you look at the map and you see um, a Muslim quarter, say if you're not Muslim, and you're you're approaching Jerusalem, which is a holy city, you know, with with all this baggage attached to it as well, and you see Muslim quarter, uh, it's it's not. So much of a leap to imagine that that's exclusive, and that non-Muslims maybe can't enter, or shouldn't enter, or can't live there, or have never lived there, or shouldn't live there. It's the way that we think of quarters, and the way that quarters um, uh, 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 communicate or translate the city for outside consumption. I think is very relevant, and, and you know, you're absolutely right, Michelle, and and other historians as well, apart from apart from Michelle Campos, have written. Very um, evocatively and importantly about um, the 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 mixed and cosmopolitan nature of Jerusalem during the Ottoman period and before as well. When I was doing my research, I, I came across a historian who had written about thirty-nine quarters, if you like, or neighborhoods of Jerusalem in the thirteenth fourteenth century. And a very famous Jerusalemite historian, uh, Mujaddidin, in fourteen ninety-five describes eighteen quarters. Of the city, you know, this, these were these were organic neighborhoods that had risen from the bottom up. They weren't like George Williams's quarters, imposed from the top down. Um, and I think that difference is crucial. Now, your
0: book is a, is a book of history, but also of contemporary issues. In fact, it's a book that merges both historical narratives with interviews of uh, Jerusalemites. Now, in this second part of the interview, I really want to focus on a few stories uh, that are discussed in the book. And I would like you to uh, perhaps take us through a sort of a virtual tour uh, of the city. And -hmm. I would like to start with Damascus Gate, Babalamut, and where this gate leads to. That's a really
1: interesting idea. Wow. The trouble is, I mean, I'm very happy to do it, and we can we can talk about it for sure. The trouble is, it, it it's it's going to get very complicated because um, Jerusalem has you know ten thousand alleyways, and they all lead in different directions, and they've all got stories attached to them, um, not all of which I know clearly, uh, not all of which are in the book. Um, but yeah, we can start for sure at Damascus Gate, which is this, um, which is the main uh, entrance to the old city from. Uh, from East Jerusalem, from from uh, majority Palestinian areas, um, and as you uh, as you approach, um, it's it's this very very imposing, tall, battlemented um, gateway. The walls uh, stretch either side. These are the walls which were built um, by the Ottoman Sultan Suleiman in in the 15, 1537 to fifteen forty one, and they're still extant as as he left them as well today. Uh, you approach through this gateway, there's a there's a dog leg which you do inside the gateway in order to 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 get on to to move ahead, um, which was a, a defensive um, uh, tactic um, so that if a, an approaching hostile force um, approaches the gateway, um, they have to turn sharp left and then turn immediately sharp right in order to enter, which exposes them to further attack and whatever. Um, as you enter, um, you're thrown immediately into the heart of the souk, into the heart of the marketplace. Um, there are stalls on both sides, um, and the steps. Uh, there, are, uh, the the street is stepped, so there's, the steps in front of you lead down, and there are there are um, hawkers shouting on both sides. At, you know the latest price for this or a cheap price for that. Um, often uh, on the steps, kind of at the at the at the foot of of shoppers. Um, will be uh, women sitting, usually uh, older women, um, often dressed in in country clothes. These are women who will have come into Jerusalem from quite often from the villages around Bethlehem just to the south, um, and they will bring with them um, vegetables or herbs um, or different condiments or whatever that they will have made or grown on their farm or produced themselves or by their neighbors or whatever. Um, to sell on the streets of jerusalem there 's a whole story with them as well because what they do is illegal, so in order to enter Jerusalem um, and to come through the military checkpoints that are that are controlled by the Israeli army um, that surround Jerusalem, they have to do various uh, they have to make various subterfuges whatever I refer to that in the book as well um, but there's this it 's a hive of activity all around you there there 's buying and selling going on everywhere um, as you come down the steps um, in front of you is, is a very, very nice falafel restaurant, which has been there for, for many years, many decades. Um, and the main street splits to left and right. So to the right, the souk, the main part of the souk, continues. Um, and it's just a very very slightly um, uh, uh, rising gradient. Um, and it continues. It's called suk Khan al-Zayt. Um, a khan is a caravanserai. Is a Zayt means oil in this case, olive oil. Um, all the way along here, um for many centuries past um olive oil was was stored and was processed um either for cooking or often into into soap olive oil soap um nowadays it's more of a general market it's a, it's a it's a market of uh, of coffee and uh, I don't know, sports shoes and kitchenware and um, and and stationery and jewelry and um, I don't know, amazing Arabic sweets and um, I don't know what a thousand things. Um, moving along this street um, that rises and eventually reaches the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which we can come to in a minute. If you take the other direction from that amazing falafel shop at the bottom of the steps from Damascus Gate. Um, that's a famous street called El Wad, which means the valley, and that leads down. Um, so the gradient is, is dropping down slightly, and you, you follow that. Again, it's part of the souk. There's, um, there's an amazing sweet shop um, on the left selling little sweets and candies for, for kids. Um, there's, um, I don't know off the top of my head, there's a pastry shop, and there's a shoe shop, and there's other places, and there's a pharmacy. Um, and as you continue down, on the left, um, there's a, a, a big wall um, which hides the garden of the Austrian hospice, which was built um, in the mid-19th century by the uh, Diocese of, of Austria um, as one of the, um, the, the lodges that European powers were building for their pilgrims to visit Jerusalem. Um, and it still survives today. It was a hospital for a long time. Um, and um, now it's a, it's, a, it's a guest house. It's quite an upmarket, quite posh guest house with a lovely roof terrace, um, and a very nice cafe where they sell um, Viennese coffee and 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 Sachertorte uh, and all sorts of things. Um, there are a thousand places we could go from here as well. We'll continue straight along, uh, along El Wad Street. You go past, um, on the left are the third and the fourth stations of the cross. The first and second are, are up the way slightly, and just sort of up to the left where we are. Um, and this is part of the Via Dolorosa, which is the Um, the traditional route followed by Jesus as he carried the cross uh, from his judgment place to Calvary. Um, Did he walk this route? Probably not. It's a tradition which arose um, over the centuries, a bit of creative visualization. Um, He was probably not judged where the first station of the cross currently is. He was probably judged over on the other side of the city, Um, whatever. This is, a, this is a, 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 a metaphysical journey, if you like, that's only rooted to the physical street by these, um, these points of, of, uh, of, of uh, religious and spiritual interest. Um, so we pass the third and the fourth station, and then we come to um, an amazing hummus restaurant called Abu Shukri, very famous, which has been there also for years and years and years. Um, uh, and
0: what is interesting is that really your you know, narrative... narrative uh... I can keep
1: going, Roberto, for, for, for hours and hours...
0: And the beauty of it is that really you get the sense reading your book of uh, a living city. So there is a the history all around. But uh, w- one thing that I found fascinating, again, about your narrative is that uh, you, you can actually get into the city itself and somehow experiencing uh, from just through, you know, the pages of the book. And, and there's another nice location. To say. Thank you. There's another location I want you to talk about, because this is very uh, interesting, challenging, and also very problematic, uh, which is the area around Dan Gate. so another part of the city. Mm. Now, the area around Dan Gate uh, essentially is connected with a, a story of a Mugrabi quarter. Now, for contemporary visitors, the Mugrabi quarter does no longer exist, uh, this was a quarter that stood there for centuries, but in 1967 was uh, literally raised to the ground after the Israeli conquered uh, the old city of Jerusalem. Can you tell us a little bit more about this?
1: Yes, I can. Um, it's uh, it's the chapter of the book, um, really, that, I, that I, I guess I was most proud of. I think telling this story um, is very important, um, and it's not told enough, um, and uh, I was very lucky to meet somebody who was able to sort of unlock the story for me. Um, she is a lady called Maisoun Al Maslahi. Her family, uh, she's Palestinian, but her family originates from Morocco and Algeria, um, and has long been involved in 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 caretaking of of uh, mosques in particular or holy places. Um, and she still looks after um, one of the only buildings that. Is still extant from the old uh, Moroccan-stroke North African quarter as it was pre nineteen sixty seven. Just on the edge of of what was that the area of that quarter, there is a building which survives um, behind a, a, an anonymous door. Um, it's not usually open to the public. I was very very lucky to be able to 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 meet her and to gain access. Um, and you, there's a little courtyard there, which is um, the building is looked after by a Moroccan. Waq, the 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 Ministry of islamic affairs of of morocco um, and there's half a dozen families live in this small uh, around this small courtyard uh, and up above is a is a small mosque um which holds a tomb um which is the focus of of Maisoun's care and attention um so she looks after the mosque and she looks after the tomb um and she she um tries to keep the memory of that quarter alive. The tomb dates, we don't know exactly. I'm not sure that any um, uh, serious investigation has been done of the tomb. Um, it dates back probably to the 14th century. Um, it's given uh, on the shroud that covers the tomb. It's given as being the tomb of Abu Madian, who is reputed to be the founder of of that quarter in Jerusalem. Abu Madian is a, is a, a very well-known uh, Sufi uh, mystical Islamic master. From that period, from the 14th um, and uh, the late 13th and 14th century. Um, It may be his tomb. It may probably, uh, it may be more likely to be um, his grandson, perhaps, or another associated figure. Um, But that is the origin of this area of Jerusalem that now no longer exists. Um, It was founded following um, Salah ad Din's uh, recapture of Jerusalem from the Crusaders. Uh, which was in eleven eighty seven um, and in the years following that um, uh, 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 reputedly legendarily as a gesture of uh, of gratitude, this area um, beside what is now what is the western wall um it is the western wall um, but but uh, beside uh, the uh, the long retaining western most wall of the Al-Aqsa compound, um, this area was given to uh, Moroccan and North African fighters who fought with Salahuddin. This is the, this is the, the story. Um, and within uh, a few decades following that, uh, we have documentary evidence of um, uh, um, endowments, land endowments in this area, which tie to um, either Abu Madian or Abu Madian's grandson and others, like I say, other associated figures. So this area um, had a long tradition um, in Moroccan and North African culture from then, um, there were mosques. There was uh, there were homes and and other buildings of different kinds. Um, from then all the way through to um, the late nineteenth century and early twentieth century. But because of this area uh, was where it was, it was always um, a focus of attention. Um, it's located directly, as I said, directly in front of the Western Wall. So. Um, up till 1967, um, the area that was open for Jews to pray at the Western Wall was a relatively narrow alleyway, which had been opened by the Sultan Suleiman um, in the 16th century as part of a process of uh, refocusing and redirecting Jewish public observance in Jerusalem um, he was, uh, he was not shutting them out. He was welcoming them in. Um, and he wanted to, uh, uh, to, to move Jewish observance from outside the city where the Jews used to gather outside the Golden Gate and also on the Mount of Olives. Um, and instead, for reasons to do with economy and politics, he wanted to welcome them into the city and to integrate them um, uh, as, as uh, 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 an element of, of the migrant economy in Jerusalem at that time. And he opened this alleyway in front of the Western Wall um, behind the Moroccan North African quarter. So that situation persisted right the way through. Um, but uh, in the late 19th century, you've written about this as well, uh, Roberto, and other people have written about this as well. In the late 19th century, at the end of the Ottoman Empire, in the early 20th century, there was a lot of focus from um, uh, particularly European Zionist Jews um, seeking to expand the Jewish presence and, and the Jewish area in front of the Western wall um, there was a lot of focus on on what was deemed and often dismissed as slum housing of the Moroccan Quarter, um, with attempts to to buy it, to uh, uh, whatever, with efforts to expropriate this area um, in order to to expand Jewish worship. Um, all of them failed for different reasons, um, and then we got to 1967 when Israel um, invaded and occupied the Old City, and Within uh, two days of uh, the Israeli army presence in Jerusalem at that time, um, a plan was put together to fulfil those ideas that had been knocking around for several decades before. To simply expropriate the area of the Moroccan Quarter and to raise it, to raise it to the ground, which which is what happened on the, on the evening of June the tenth, nineteen sixty seven. Um, men with sledgehammers went in first, um, and then bull, 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 sorry bulldozers followed. Uh, during the night and by morning uh, most of the work had already been done it went on for another 24 hours or so and the area was reduced to rubble and and completely cleared and there were deaths um there was a woman um who uh we understand also uh, may soon tells this story as well that she was deaf and so she didn't hear the banging and the shouting um and all the commotion uh, that evening so she stayed in her house when everybody else around her was fleeing and, and leaving as, as quickly as they could. Um, she stayed in her house and her house was demolished around her. Um, there were also um, uh, uh, um, uh, testimony from um, Israeli army officers and engineers who were present at the time as well that more bodies were found um, after this operation and some were removed and there's a report by um, one of the engineers that says some were simply not, and they were just uh, bulldozed into the ground, into the dirt, in front of the Western Wall, um, which was then paved over, and is now the plaza that we see today. Um, it's a shocking story, it's an awful story. Um, it's a story that, that hasn't been told enough, certainly not in English, um, and it's not a story that's visible at all when you're in the place. There is no, there's no plaque, there's no sign, there's no evidence that um, this huge, vast uh, plaza in front of the Western Wall was anything but a plaza. Um, memory is uh, bulldozed as well, if you like, um, and I'm proud of this chapter in this book um, for being one tiny effort to keep that memory alive. Um, on Mason's behalf as well, and the people around Mason.
0: And this is a very important chapter, as you mentioned. The the story of the Mugrabi Quarter, I mean, did not end in 1967, but it continues with the people that uh, eventually were displaced uh, after those events. And and in a sense, uh, for different reasons, uh, the the Mugrabi Quarter came to be once again, uh, uh, you know, sort of a, in the news headline when uh, some excavations were made around the area and eventually archaeologists found material uh, connected to the maghrebi Quarter and not to earlier period and so many people mm. then realized that actually there was a Maghribi Quarter up until 1967, so not exactly mm. a long time ago.
1: No, exactly, and even if, if we're thinking about the same um, the same uh, excavation, uh, people found coins, uh, Jordanian era coins from the you know, the nineteen fifties and nineteen sixties that had been left. The money people were were so desperate to run away from their homes because of these sledgehammers and the and the bulldozers coming in that they dropped money. Even you know they weren't even uh, didn't even have, even even have enough time to pick up all their possessions. Um, the finding of the coins was particularly poignant. I
0: thought absolutely. Now it is impossible really to ask about all of the stories in your book, but the last one I want to ask about is. Uh, is the story of a community, I would say, widely neglected, which is the community of the Afro-Palestinians. Who are they? Mm. How did they come to Jerusalem, and how how they fit uh, your narrative? Yeah, that's a it's a
1: really really interesting story. Um, as you say, is is also widely unknown as well. I was um, again, I was very happy to use the platform that I've got um, to be able to give this uh, a little bit of a boost. Um, this is a community. Um, today numbering about 450 people who are Muslim um, and who um, claim their origins from different parts of West and Central Africa. Um, and they live in a, in a small community right at the gates of Al-Aqsa in a place called Babel Majlis um, in two um, little compounds across a narrow alleyway from each other uh, right next to the, uh, to the gateway into the mosque um their history um uh, their history is very long and very complicated um it's 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 a difficult um and it's not a straightforward topic um to try and summarize um broadly there is um um the 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 conversion uh or the or the acceptance of islam um, in uh, West Africa is is dated to around the eleventh century, the early part of the eleventh century, um, in an area called Takrur, which is um, uh, as as far as is understood, is um, uh, where Senegal and Mauritania, modern day Senegal and modern day Mauritania, meet. Um, and the the history of the African Palestinian community today in Jerusalem. Um, uh, with breaks and with difficulties um, um, caused by often by lack of documentary evidence, there's plenty of oral evidence, um, but often documentary evidence is lacking. Um, links back from today, uh, back in in some way or other, back to Takrur. Um, the communities, if you talk to them today, um, tend to claim um, four origin points. In particular, they claim Senegal, uh, Nigeria, Chad, and Sudan. Um, and looking into that as well, I was, um, I, I, I seem to be able to uncover the idea that Sudan, as it's understood, um, now may not always just relate to the Republic of Sudan, the South of Egypt that we know today. Um, Sudan, um, is a, is a difficult and complicated term, which may, Uh, and in colonial times, in French colonial times, referred to a whole area, a swathe of sort of West and Central Africa. Um, So it may be um, that um, the origin in Sudan is not linked necessarily specifically to the state that we know today, but it's linked to this much larger area. Um, Broadly, often um, African Muslim um, pilgrims would come to Jerusalem often after the Hajj to Mecca from the 15th century in, 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 in larger numbers. Um, and sometimes people would stay. And so, um, people would, uh, as is familiar, people would, would cluster, as we've talked about before, would cluster in certain areas. Um, and one of the areas that, um, African Muslim people were, were, were known to have, to have gathered in was this area, which is still populated today at Babel Majlis, um, under the Ottoman, um, the Ottoman rulers, um, uh, people who stayed, uh, were often given jobs uh, in security and policing, um, in in either policing uh, the gateways into the mosque to make sure that that non-Muslims didn't enter or to provide security for the um, Muslim uh, religious institutions and teaching institutions that were gathered around the walls of Al-Aqsa. And that persisted uh, right the way through to the 19th century. Um, and even beyond into the early 20th century, um, by the time right at the end of the Ottoman Empire in the 19, 1900s and 1910s, these two compounds um, are known as a prison. Um, so they were the main prison of Jerusalem. One one sort of across this alleyway, one side of the alleyway was um, was a, a prison for... Uh, people who were held on remand, or or people with shorter sentences, and across the way, across the alleyway, the other compound was for people who had life sentences or often death sentences. Um, exactly um, when that transition occurred from uh, civilian uh, um, security guards to a prison, um, I don't know. I've not been able to find out. The sources that I've looked at don't specify exactly when that transition occurred. It occurred at some point before the late 19th, early 20th centuries. Um, When the British arrived in 1917, they cleared the prison out and they moved the prison outside the walls of the city. Um, But then um, that that relation of African Muslim communities in Jerusalem to security uh, persisted the bodyguards of the mufti of Jerusalem Amin al Husseini um, at this time were African um, and in return for protecting him he was a he was a, a, a rebellious figure who was often in conflict with the British authorities um, in return for protecting him the African communities were were granted the right to resettle in this area that had been the prison in these in these old compounds that had been persisting for for centuries um, and so that that tradition um is maintained to this day so there are there are African communities um there now which often consist of again pilgrims who will have uh, visited Jerusalem after performing the Hajj and who then will have stayed on um and there are various stories among the community of particular figures who uh made this move um and um and then settled um and often um there was there's now intermarriage, so um, there are also concerns among the community as well that that um, although they're very they they maintain a clear sense of their own identity um, themselves within their own community, there is a sense that the wider identity is being lost um, because of intermarriage and because of integration with the wider Palestinian community. There are lots of very fascinating um, social and political ramifications. Um, to, this, uh, to the presence of, these, of these, this particular community, these people here. Um, it's a really fascinating story. I was, um, I was delighted to come across it, and I was delighted to be able to tell it in, in the best way that
0: I could. I have one last question, and I just want to go back to the very beginning. So after writing the book, did your view about Jerusalem change somehow? Oh, yes, definitely. I mean, my, Jerusalem,
1: my view of Jerusalem has changed uh, Almost minute by minute, sometimes, Um, but certainly, you know, from 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 year to year. So the the my view of Jerusalem when I visited when I was you know eleven and twelve and thirteen is quite different from how I view the city now. Um, As you know, each time that I go back, like I said early on, I've had this enormous privilege because of the passport that I carry and because of the color of my skin and various other privileges that I have, the language that I speak. Um, that I've been able to, uh, in a sense, measure myself against Jerusalem. So as I have changed, as I've grown from a child to an adult, uh, and as my um, thoughts and outlooks and political sensibilities, whatever, have changed over the years, um, I've been very lucky to be able to go back and back and back to Jerusalem and to see how I have changed in relation to it and how it changes in relation to me. Um, So for sure, writing this book, um has changed my view of jerusalem uh, writing this book uh, was a liberation for me um to be able to to um to say this stuff you know to have had this stuff inside for so long if you like all my life um and to be able to uh, to sort of i don't know how to put it to weigh my words uh, you know carefully enough over the years and the decades in order to come out with something that I know to be right according to my criteria uh, and I know to be good according to my criteria um, was, was, was a liberation. Was, yeah, it was absolutely liberating and it, was, it, it made me feel different about myself, um, but it also made me feel different about Jerusalem as well. That understanding that the people were able to give to me, were so willing you know, and generous to give to me, um, certainly has changed my view of Jerusalem. Um, and has, uh, you know, deepened my understanding of the place, but has also deepened my understanding of the political context in which it sits. Has deepened my understanding of the social, uh, or the wider social context of of Palestine and Israel. Um, and without wanting to get, you know, too purple about it, has also deepened my understanding of humanity as well. This has been.
0: Uh, an extraordinary experience writing this book. I've loved every minute of it. This was Matthew Teller, author of Nine Quarters of Jerusalem, a new biography of the Old City, published by Profile Books in 2022. Matthew, thank you so much. Thank you very much indeed, Roberto. It's been a pleasure.